Hello and welcome. This is a podcast explaining Ukraine by ukraineworld.org, a website in English about Ukraine. What were the key events and trends in the past week since the 11th July until 17th July? This is our traditional weekly digest. My name is Volodymyr Yermolenko. I'm chief editor of ukraineworld.org. I'm talking to Titano Harkova, who is in charge of international outreach at Ukraine Crisis Media Center. Hello, Tanya. Hello. Uh, Ukraine World is brought to you by Internews Ukraine, one of the oldest and biggest Ukrainian media NGOs. I also remind you that you can support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash ukraineworld. We spend a big amount of your donations to help people affected by this war and to help Ukrainian resistance. So what were the key events and trends during this week, Tanya? Well, uh, during this week, we haven't seen any kind of um, significant progress of of the Russian army in Donbass. They are still exhausted. They are still trying to to regroup their troops, to find new troops. We uh, we got some news about new divisions which are um, formed in Russia. But uh, on the ground, we don't see any significant moves. But at the same time, uh, what we see, what we observed during this week, it's uh, intensification of missile strikes against Ukrainian territory, um, namely in Vinnytsia, but also in Dnipro, uh, in other places, in Mykolaiv. So this kind of missiles despair, what, how we call it, so they are um, trying to strike more civilians, more civilian in- infrastructure, and maybe the objective of these strikes is uh, to, um, to to press um, uh, f- for, for civilians to be um, terrorized and to press on Zelensky and on the Ukrainian government to stop this war at any price, because this is maybe their plan. So in Vinyasa it was extremely clear that uh, the strike was against civilian infrastructure, uh, against the city center. Uh, many civilians, 24 civilians, lost their lives during this attack and um, three kids, unfortunately, included. So um, this is a kind of uh, missile's despair. So they're trying to, to use these terrorist attacks in order to stop Ukrainian resistance on the ground in the front line. So at the same time, uh, we see that these missile strikes, missile madness, uh, which we described in one of our previous podcasts, it also kind of uh, it goes hand in hand with, with uh, what Russians are calling the operational pause on the front line. And this operational pause means that Russians are trying to uh, suspend their uh, operations on the ground. We know that their next target is Donetsk Oblast, the uh, towns like Slovyansk, Kramatorsk, Bakhmut. We have talked about this in our uh, previous weekly episode. And there is a certain calm down, there is a certain slowdown of, uh, of the land activities uh, in, the, in the eastern Ukraine. But at the same time, we see those missile strikes on, on civilian cities. We have seen the, the huge, uh, enormous strike on... Uh, on one of the town in Donetsk Oblast. Chasifiar. Chasifiar, yes. On uh, on the residential building in which uh, over after each of this strike there is there should be a week uh, I think to understand how many people have died because people are collecting the bodies under the under the ruins of the buildings. Uh this week we had uh, absolutely horrible attack on Vinnytsia, as you said, also on, on civilian objects. And uh, we still don't know the exact number of dead because there are dozens of people who are considered to be missing. 
and uh, as you said uh, there are also kids who are dead and there is one of the story of the one one of the family a mother the, and the child which is very widely discussed right now in Ukraine because uh, it seems that of course uh, between each mother and the child there is enormous love in enormous tenderness but uh, this mother and the child were also a little bit public persons because you know, the mother was an activist for let's say for children health and uh, so this is very kind of bizarre and and about, about mini vinita let's probably talk a little bit later because we need to explain why the attack on the city is so shocking uh, but uh, in this operational pause there is uh, this situation when it seems that Russians are slowing down their attack on the ground, but to compensate this, they do these missile strikes. Why are they slowing down the, the attack? Because they're probably regrouping forces to focus more on the Donetsk region. But also maybe because of the attacks of HIMARS, of these multi-launch rocket systems. And we explained the importance of HIMARS in our previous weekly podcasts. And I just can announce that we have a good conversation with Alina Frolova, which is coming very soon about the weapons, and she explains why HIMARS are making a difference on the front line. So coming back to, to Vinitsa, why do you think, um, because it's, it, it was one of the most shocking, I think, events not only of the past week, but also of, uh, of uh, the previous months, why do you think it was so shocking for Ukrainians? Um, yeah, it's quite clear why it was shocking because Vinitsa w- is uh, a city located some 300 kilometers from Kiev to the west, to the southwest, in fact. And Vinitsa was never a target for uh, missiles. Um, it is. It ki- was. It was. It there was. was uh, there were also uh, missile strikes around Vinitsa on the on the yeah, suburbs, but, but not in the. Yeah, in but 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 it was in the stage where a Russian army was approaching uh, Kiev. And the objective was quite clear. They, their targets were military ones. Uh, but uh, this time it was about the city center, a huge square in this city center, and a center and a building called um, Palace of Officers, which was used to for uh, multiple cultural activities, for example, for children's activities like uh, dance. Uh, I don't know exactly, a music school or something like that. And this particular mother with this particular child, four years old child, was uh, going there for um, educational activities for her child. So um, this is offices, buildings also. This is a name and maybe the mistake was there that they took this for a military uh, target. Um, The problem is, why it's shocking? It is because this is city center, this is not close to any kind of a stock, any kind of a military plant or any kind of plant which could be military target. And uh, the stories we've heard were really shocking because people were crossing the square. For example, there is another story of a kid uh, from Kherson. Uh, he and his family, they left Kherson, occupied Kherson s- some time ago. And he was in a car and with his uncle and they were waiting for his grandmother who were inside the bank on the square and at that very moment there was an air alert and the this car just was exploded so the kid was killed 
in in this explosion and uh, even if even uh, the body is uh, it's impossible to identify and this is a case for two kids and for at least several adults so there are bodies and people uh, uh, were not able to identify the, the bodies because the bodies were how to say it correctly, defigurated in a way, so it's extremely difficult. So this is a city center, and the, the, the clear sign that uh, such this kind of attack could happen anywhere, in any city, in any town, regardless whether there is a military object or not close to that place. So it's another reason to take seriously uh, air alerts, ensure this uh, issue of uh, the protection of air from airlets uh, and from missiles it's widely discussed in ukraine according to what officials say uh, ukrainian army is able to um, to this to, to, to destroy about 50 percent of missiles arriving to ukraine so it means half of missiles are destroyed but not all of them and there is no system, no system in the world, even in Israel, which is capable to destroy 100%. So if you talk about Israel, they have 80 or 90% of protection, but at, at least 10 up to 20% of missiles do arrive and do destruct and do kill people. So this is a huge challenge for Ukraine because civilians... Uh, are really shocked and civilians i guess all over ukraine in 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 every city because it could happen everywhere and uh, regard uh, regarding vinnytsia also there were four missiles and two of them were shot down so it also 50% so imagine if all the four missiles reached the target the number of casualties would be much much bigger but we see this number of casualties and number of defigurated bodies and uh, parts of the bodies and um, uh, unidentified bodies and uh, people who are missing, which can also mean that they are their bodies were just not identified. Uh, this is also this is also also one of the one of the realities. But uh, at the same time, what is maybe good news here? We've seen the maps. Uh, of artillery fire in the east on the front line during this week and what is quite clear now is that the intensity of artillery fire in Donbass and in the south it has considerably um, consider considerably decreased. decreased during this week so when you see that in color it was extremely red some two weeks ago but because of the destruction by HIMARS of these huge stocks for artillery, they have no capacity now to to continue their strikes. But they intensify their strikes by missiles on the rest of the territory. Yes, and we have seen uh, the two other towns which are now targeted very, very ho horribly. It's Mykolaiv on the, in the south. We have friends in Mykolaiv who are telling us that they're really already targeting the city center. Uh, over the past week, there were attacks on the universities in Mykolaiv. Obviously, not military military targets. Hopefully, students were not there because in many places, education in Ukraine is now online. The distance education, but uh, but the but the education process is disrupted, obviously. 
And uh, also they are targeting Dnipro, a big city in the eastern Ukraine. Almost one million or even more than one million people are living there. And uh, I also have a friend, an American, who just went to Dnipro and he sent me uh, the pictures. And the missile was just some 800 meters from him. Mm. So it was was quite shocking for him. And there were civilians dead, at least three civilians died during this attack in Dnipro. And we've seen videos, there were people burning inside their cars. So uh, so it was also in, the, in, the, in this one of the streets of the city and many wounded. So if you now uh, listen to some, you know, news, okay, Ukraine and Russians are fighting and maybe each side is doing some bad things, each side killing people. Well, Russians are killing civilians in, in peaceful towns with their rockets. Ukrainians are not sending their missiles to towns, cities in, in Russia. Not because Ukrainians cannot reach them, but uh, but because we just don't care about other territory. We, do, we don't want to conquer any other territory. We just want to get rid of them here in Ukraine. Coming back to Vinitsa, we have all, all of us have good experiences of Vinitsa. Vinitsa is not so far away from Kiev. And when we were evacuating our family with you in early March, we were coming through Vinitsa as well. And then uh, when I was bringing uh, people from Kiev sometimes um, to the western Ukraine, Vinitsa was one of the destinations. Very often people just ask me to bring them on, the, on, on our car to Vinitsa. If you reach Vinitsa, you can you you had an impression that you are in a safe place, uh, because Zhitomir is still uh, in March, in April is still a dangerous place. Vinitsa was kind of a, the first, maybe the first big town, which was big city, which was appeared to be uh, relatively uh, safe, and we we see right now this is not the case. Yes, indeed, and this uh, kid, they were. Uh, which were killed in the, in the car in Vinitsa, they were they escaped Kherson, they escaped occupation, they felt uh, quite safe in Vinitsa, uh, the whole family. Uh, I mean, and they they wanted to stay there. Vinitsa had nothing to. It's really very far from the front line, and uh, and when you are killed in a peaceful city far from the front line, where you already escaped. Uh, um, the occupation this is something really tragic in this story. Coming back to Kherson, by the way, uh, one of the stories to follow is the preparation for the so-called referendum, which Russians were trying to do in Kherson, in Kherson Oblast, about either the... Well, I think that they rejected an idea of any kind of a Kherson People's Republic. They want to uh, join it to Crimea and make a kind of a big... Tavria, um, Tavria region, which would in encompass Crimea and then southern Ukraine. And they, why it is important, we understand that all this referendum uh, have no validity, nobody will recognize them. Uh, but why are they important? Of course, to create kind of an image of legitimacy. But secondly, uh, to kind of react to the situation when Ukrainians will make counteroffensive and to say at that moment Russian will say Russians will say that look you're attacking our territory 
or it's already our territory. We see that, for of course, uh, in in the Russian among the Russian propagandists on Russian TV, saying that Mykolaiv is Russia, Kherson is Russia, Odessa is Russia, Kharkiv is Russia, Dnipro is Russia. So, <laughs> when Ukrainians are, you know, hitting, for example, in the newly occupied territories, hitting the uh, ammunition depots, they are attacking Russia. This is the the, the message. But uh, if they succeed in doing this referendum, of course, they will have kind of a the legitimacy argument inside Russia that look, this is already Russia, so we need to protect this, uh, protect these lands, etc. But they find it difficult, and that what surprises me. Uh, can you remember in Donbas the re- referendum referendum was very quick in Crimea? The referendum was like they started occupation in late February. And they had the referendum when on on sixteenth oh, of March. On the, yes, on t- yes, on sixteenth of March. Or eighteenth, il- so there was already official result, official. Or uh, no, no, no. I think it was eleventh of March the referendum, and then on the sixteenth they declared the Crimea independence, and on eighteenth they annexed Crimea. I think mm-hmm. the it was the case. Now, so so they needed actually several weeks in Crimea, uh, from the real military occupation until. They made the referendum. In Do- in the Donbass, they need probably yes several weeks, maybe one month. The referendum was in May. It was in May, the eleventh of May, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. 11th of yeah. May, so so, so also one month or something. Now they occupied Kherson already in early March, if I'm if I'm not mistaken, right? And now we have mid July, so it's already one, two, three, four, five, four something months. And they, and they uh, cannot cannot make a referendum. But they are planned. They planned it for September, for the 11th of September, according to their plans. But uh, well, they planned several times. There were several dates. It seems that yeah. they they find it difficult to to collect the information to organize it properly. But um, I think that they are also afraid of the Ukrainian counteroffensive, which is planned for for August at least, according to Ukrainian sources. So maybe they just tr- trying to wait because it will be absurd to to have any kind of referendum during this counterattack or uh, right uh, uh, just uh, before this uh, counterattack. So this is quite unclear. And uh, what what we see in the Russian rhetorics during these last weeks, they are not talking much about South, about the South. They are talking about Donbass, they are talking about protection of Donbass people, but they avoid saying any cli- any kind of clear messages about about the South. Because maybe it's because they are not so very much sure about their cap- capacity to, to keep this region under occupation. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, <coughs> there is information that they are preparing for some kind of <coughs> Ukrainian counteroffensive. It's also a big question when whether Ukrainians are right now are capable of counteroffensive, whether we have enough resources, because we have been talking about these hovisers, about the uh, the high Mars, but it's um, it's not the it's not the so much. We we don't have it in in, in big quantities. I think to to make counteroffensive counteroffensive right now but of course we will we will see and uh, Ukrainians of course believe in the counteroffensive uh but um, but yeah this is this is important what else uh, before before we i think it's important to stress uh, now the awareness that our colleagues are trying to raise about 
people in captivity and uh, in particular there are over 7000 people Ukrainians which are considered to be missing and many of them or m- many of them are prisoners of war yeah uh 7000 is a huge number huge number and um in one of these is our friend is a prominent Ukrainian human rights activist Maxim Butkevich yesterday uh there was his birthday 45 years old he's actually a, a pacifist a leftist a liberal very known human rights defender in Ukraine uh having his own organization really very active in in protecting rights of the minorities of different kind but he joined the army as a volunteer and now he is imprisoned and there is a campaign free maxim butkevich so you can see it on our twitter on facebook of many ukrainians you can see the hashtag free maxim butkevich and so uh, of course it's it's important to free everybody but uh, the problem is that the russians are telling some horrible stories that here's a fascist or nazi as, as they usually do course we know this is not the case he's rather from the leftist flank he's rather anti-fascist he was kind of uh in conflict with uh, as as other ukrainian leftists with some far right groups in ukraine so these are also people who are now on the front line and who are now in in russia's uh, russian's prisons yes i know uh, max max butkevich for maybe 20 years already he is uh, he has al- always been a kind of uh, human rights uh, human rights activist and very active in this field and um, very open and it was a real surprise for many when back in february 2022 um he published a photo of him in a uniform so he joined armed forces of ukraine it was something we could not easily imagine before he had no military experience before um i have some doubts he've been in the army for his um service military service when he was 18 years old i, I have some doubts about that so he was a kind of a um kind of a pacifist all during all these years but it was a turning point for him i mean this aggression this russian attack against ukraine was a turning point for him he joined armed forces and what we know he was captured in l- late june in zolote and hirsky it was a moment just before ukrainian troops um left uh, Lysychansk maybe one week before that that, that moment uh, he was captured together with 41 uh, Ukrainian soldier and Russian they published they immediately published uh, a video and unfortunately we were able to recognize Maxim Butkevich on this video they were encircled in these villages and uh, unfortunately the fam- his family they have no news from Maxim for during already almost one month uh 26 days uh today uh and this clear enough to everybody's worrying about Butkevich and about his uh his destiny there there was a kind of hesitation for his family whether to make him public or not uh and just to treat him separately from others but for us this is important and uh, what we see in russian uh, resources and russian propaganda they are trying to present him as nazi which is absolutely not true because uh, just on the contrary as you've said already uh, max is somebody mm, really pacifist really human rights defender really defending minorities 
really against any kind of nationalisms in in a way of being aggressive or whatever so and this is vital for for all the community to get him back we do hope so and uh, we will try also to talk on this podcast with people on the front line and i can announce one of the next episode we'll talk with uh, one of our friends who is now on the front line and we will try to present you these people you will see that many of them are just uh, a good normal people activists who really want to reform ukraine and uh, it's astonishing how many people really went to the front line both men and women so we'll try to feature more of such people uh english speaking hopefully <laughs> that uh, on on our podcast which is a, not an easy task especially if, if if people are on the front line but we will find some uh, opportunity to do that this was an explaining ukraine podcast by ukraineworld.org ukraine world is brought to you by internews ukraine uh, one of the oldest and biggest ukrainian media, media ngos my name is vladimir Yermolenko. i talked to tetyana oharkova you can support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash ukraineworld. We spend big amount of your support to help Ukrainian resistance, to help people affected by this war. We traveled a lot uh, across Ukraine uh, and we prepared to you several podcasts with Tane about our, our, our latest trips. So follow us on social networks, uh, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, SoundCloud, Spotify, of course, Twitter and Facebook. Stay with us and stand with Ukraine.